No my hare mai to the Green Tea Podcast. My name is Chloe Swarbrick. I am a Green MP based in Auckland Central. And the name of this podcast is Green Tea because I was trying really hard to come up with a name for a podcast. And uh, I came across the Young Greens Facebook page where they were having yarns about things associated to politics. And Green Tea was what they were calling them. So I have absolutely stolen this name. But uh, each episode throughout this podcast, I'll be having an energizing kōrero. Uh, energizing is the terminology that Bonnie, my intern, has inserted into this bio. Um, but I probably, uh, it'll be as energizing as I can make it uh, with philanthropists, journalists, etc. Uh, but basically just genuinely inspiring individuals uh, and hopefully it'll wake us up a bit, uh, the work brigade, uh, to what is happening around the world and what we might do to take responsibility and to take action for those issues. In this episode, I talk to Dr. Jane Goodall. Jane is literally, as opposed to figuratively, uh, the, most ex- the foremost expert on chimpanzees in the entire world and is passionate about animal welfare and conservation, and obviously, as it happens, because everything is interconnected, climate action. I talked to Jane about where that ambition came from and how she welcomed these opportunities without a university degree. And here's a tease. It started with a fascination for chickens. We also had a chat about her Roots and Shoots program and discuss the energy, enthusiasm and real power of rangatahi, our young people. Kia ora koutou e te um, My name is Chloe, uh, one of your Green MPs, and I'm incredibly fortunate today to be joined by um, the just amazing uh, Dr. Jane Goodall, uh, who is in the country at the moment talking to a number of New Zealanders about the importance of ecology, biodiversity, and climate action. Is that a good summation? Yeah. Okay, brilliant. <laughs> so um, I thought whilst she was here that it would make sense to um, have a wee conversation with her about why all of that stuff matters. So um, I've gone on your Wikipedia page uh, and I've learned a few things about you. Uh, and one of them is that according to at least Wikipedia or the broader internet, uh, that you first became interested in animals when your father gave you a stuffed chimpanzee yeah, called Jubilee. That is a fallacy that goes oh, really? round and round and round. Yeah. We can't get rid of it. <laughs> well, hopefully now this is yes, documentation. Right. So Indeed, he gave me once a and chimpanzee yeah. when I was 18 months, and I loved him, Jubilee, mm-hmm. took him everywhere. But I was interested in animals before I got Jubilee, and people think it was because I had a stuffed chimpanzee that I was <laughs> passionate to study chimpanzee. Nothing could be further from the truth. Yeah. You know, my passion was to go to Africa live with wild animals and write books about them. Mm-hmm. And that was because of Dr. Doolittle. Yes. Remember? Yeah, Dr. Doolittle. You remember he took African animals from the circus back to Africa? Yep. And then Tarzan. So oh, wow. Tarzan I met when I was 10 in a book. Yeah. yeah. Because there was no TV back then. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was going to say, Many Dr. Books. Doolittle, I learned about through films. So. Yes, exactly. Yeah, well, wow. I didn't. Books. Yeah. And so my dream began at 10. And... Everybody laughed at me. How would I possibly get, get to it? Africa? We didn't yeah. have money. Yep. World War II was raging. Mm. Africa was far away. We didn't know much about it. Mm-hmm. And I was just a girl. So how did you so manage was, to overcome all of that? And it was my mother, my amazing mother. A, she supported my love of animals. Mm-hmm. And she didn't freak out when she found I'd taken a whole handful of earthworms to bed with me. <laughs> 
when did you uh, you took a whole uh, well, handful of earthworms to bed with you well she said i was watching them as i wondered how they could walk without legs yeah mm. so you've always just been fascinated always. by nature and then when i was four and a half mum took me for a holiday in the country onto a farm because we lived in london and i was given the job of collecting hen's eggs and, you know, in those days, farmers were proper, animals were out in the field. Yes, proper free range. Proper free range. And so I'd go around these hen houses where the hens slept at night and there were the nest boxes. So I'd lift the lid and if there was an egg, pop it in my little basket. But then apparently I began asking everybody, but where is the hole on the hen big enough? <laughs> so to get the egg out there. And nobody told me. So I remember seeing this hen. She yes. brown. She was going into one of these little hen houses. I must have thought, ah, she's going to Lennox. So I crawled after her. Squawks of fear, she flew out. <laughs> and so, again, you know, I mean, now I'm on the path of discovery. Mm. But I must have realized, well, no hen will lay an egg here because she flew out in fear. Mm. So I waited in an empty. There were about six of them where they slept at night. And I waited four hours. Four hours? Four hours, aged four and a half. That's quite dedicated. Uh, I know. Yeah. My mother didn't know where I was. Yeah. Everybody was out searching and it was beginning to get dark. And you can think many mothers grab that child. How dare you go off without telling us? But as she saw me running towards the house, she saw my shining eyes and sat down to hear the wonderful story of how a hen lays an egg. It's so, so cool. Um, you know, so a different kind of mother. Mm. I mean, the, the importance of that story. That's the making of a little scientist, curiosity, asking questions, mm. not getting the right answer, deciding to find out for yourself, mm. making a mistake, not giving up and learning patience. And support as well. well then, but then if I'd had a different kind of mother, that might have been crushed. Yeah, that's so, so fantastic. Yeah. So that's the role that you're, I presume, trying to play now in young people's lives and going out and talking to them and with the Roots and Shoots program. Yeah, so when I wanted to go to Africa... And everybody laughed. Mum said, if you really want this, you have to work really hard. Mm -hmm. Take advantage of opportunity, but don't give up. So that's the message I take, particularly to kids in disadvantaged communities. Mm. And so many have come up and said, Jane, I really want to thank you. You taught me that because you did it, I can do it too. Mm. That's incredible. I so wish mum was around so that she knew. How incredible you are. <laughs> no, how incredibly her message yeah. has resonated around the world. That's fantastic. What was your name? Who? Your mother's name. Well, her, her proper name, she was Welsh, was Mafanwi, which Van she hated. Yeah. So she was known as Van. Van. Yeah. Well, this is for Van then, everything Van. you've done. Yeah. That's so cool. So how did you actually end up, what were the opportunities that you took advantage of to first land in Africa and to get on with, you know, what became your life's work? Well, I couldn't afford university. I had just enough for a secretarial course, very mm -hmm. boring, job in London, a letter from a school friend inviting me to Africa, Kenya, uh, where her parents had a farm mm -hmm. for a holiday. Opportunity, yep. no money, couldn't save up in London, went home, worked as a waitress for, I know, five, six months, yep. saving up the wages and the tips until I had enough money for a return trip to Africa by boat in those days. By boat? Yeah, well, there weren't planes flying back and forth. Yeah. How long was the boat trip? Took about a month because we should have gone through the Suez Canal. But there was a war with Egypt, so it was shut. Yeah. So we had to go all the way around the Cape. 
Far out. And it took about a month. A, a month, yeah. To get, so how long were you in Africa that first time? Uh, just over a year. Yeah. Because I stayed with my friend, heard about Louis Leakey. Yep. Uh, went to see him. I think he was impressed by how much I knew about mm. animals, even though I'd just come from the UK. And the strange thing was that two days uh, before I met with him, his secretary had left. We needed a secretary, and there I was. <laughs> offering offering your that, services. That boring secretarial, after all, took yeah. me into a world where everybody could answer all the questions I had. Yeah, so my understanding, um, looking at, you know, at least what's written down on the internet about your history, is that Lewis Leakey then, through that job and that secretarial position, you had the opportunity to then start your observation of these chimpanzees. How did that come about? Well... <clears throat> After I'd been working for him for about a year, um, he started talking to me about a group of chimpanzees living on a lake shore in what was then Tanganyika, part mm. of the crumbling British Empire, mm. Tanzania today. And of course, that was I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I would never have dreamt. Nobody studied chips in the wild. They were exotic. They were. They were, they were out of my imagination. Really. Yeah, well, they're not cows, so you don't come across them on a daily basis. Yeah. So I thought maybe about, you know, some animal on the plains. Mm. But chimpanzees, yes, but it took him a year to get the money. I mean, he was going to give money to this young girl with no degree. So I went back to UK and read everything I could about it. It was nothing except captive chimps. Yeah. And um, then the British authorities when he finally got money for just six months. Mm. They said, uh, we're not taking responsibility. This is a ridiculous idea. But in the end, they said, well, she can't come alone. So the volunteer was that same amazing mother. That's so, so awesome. So your amazing. mother came with you? She came for the first four months of the six months that money that I had. Wow. And she supported, I mean... She was amazing because at first the chimps ran away. Yeah. But when I get back despondent, when it was just getting dark, you know, she was boosting my morale and pointing out that from this peak I discovered my binoculars. I was learning mm. more than I thought. Mm. And sadly, she left just before that breakthrough observation, seeing a chimpanzee using and making tools. Yeah. And I mean, that's one of the things actually talking about the fact that you didn't have a formalised education that had largely taught yourself. Um, many people who have written screeds and screeds about you credit the fact that you hadn't had a university education as to why you notice things that others wouldn't. Well, I think what it was, and why Leakey chose me actually, mm. one, he thought women made better observers, more patient. And, um, <laughs> secondly, secondly, he wanted somebody whose mind wasn't biased by the very reductionist way mm. that science was talking about animals. And so those two things. But, you know, I'd spent all my childhood watching animals yeah, and watching the birds and the squirrels and so on. So I just did the same with the chimps. I knew if I had long enough, I could get them to accept me. But did I have long enough? So mum left after four months, and it was just after that, the tool-using, tool-making. We were supposed to be the only tool-using, making animals. Species on the planet, on yeah. On the planet. So that's what brought the geographic in. And that was, you know, so they provided money. They sent a photographer, a filmmaker, Hugo Van Lauer, 
Yeah. To document, because by then I was beginning to get closer. So, it's what what you this was the 60s, the 50s, 1960. 1960. How were you getting that information out there and disseminated to the general public when it took you a month by boat to arrive in Africa? It was letters, letters, okay. There were some planes and they did take the mail, okay. It took about at least at least two weeks minimum, usually much longer, for a letter to get there and an answer to come yeah, back. to share the information. But it was said, amazing news. Yeah, the yeah. information only went to Leakey. Mm. And um, when he told some scientists about it, mm. they said, well, we don't believe it. She's just a girl. She doesn't know anything. But, of course, when Hugo came and filmed it, then they had to... It was the documentation, of yeah. course. Yeah. So what happened then? Because I understand you spent five years originally um, with the chimpanzees. After I'd been two years, I was made by Leakey to go and get a PhD. Yes. Right. And I understand so, you were one of you, you were the eighth person ever to go to the University of Cambridge without an undergrad degree, to go right. to directly that's into that's a postgrad. Right. So your maximum time to do a PhD, which is, you know, you have to write a thesis. Mm-hmm. Was five years, mm-hmm. and I took the five years because I kept rushing back to Gombe because Flo had a baby, and I needed to document. So I sort of, I stretched it for the, the entire the possible five years, years. Yeah. yeah, so that I could spend time in Gombe. And Flo is one of the chimpanzees. I mean, that's sure. another amazing thing yeah. that you David did. Greybeard found showed me the tools. Flo showed me uh, the wonders of infant development. But you know, the worst thing was that when I got to Cambridge, nervous. You can imagine. Oh, yeah. It's a very stuffy environment to go into after you've been observing chimpanzees. The the professors were telling me I did everything wrong. I shouldn't have given the chimps names. That wasn't scientific. They didn't talk about personality, mind, or emotion. Those were unique to us. But luckily, my childhood teacher taught me that that was wrong. Yeah. My childhood teacher was my dog. (laughs) But you you completely went up against academia and those institutions and you defied all of that how did you end up even coming to publish something from a university like that because because my supervisor who started off as my sternest critic um and he was probably the top ethologist in the uk Mm. at the time robert hind he came to gombe saw the chimps and afterwards he wrote to me and said that two weeks taught me more about animals than everything before. So he was the one who helped me write about my observations Mm. in such a way that I couldn't be torn apart by other scientists. And I loved learning to think in a scientific, logical way way. and question everything that you thought was true and make sure that it was as correct as you could make it. But by virtue of publishing that, you profoundly changed the way that animals were perceived. So. Eventually. Yeah, eventually. Well, the chimps are so like us biologically, and we were showing with film the similarities in behaviour. Uh, so the scientists simply had to start coming out of this little narrow way of thinking. I mean, I was actually taught the difference between us and all the other animals was one of kind. We were separated. That was an unbridgeable chasm, mm. and we were on that pinnacle, you know. Mm. And I think it probably stemmed from religion. Yep. But as I say, you know, the chimps helped helped me 
mm. to help science to bridge the gap and realise we're part of the animal kingdom. On the point of um, religion, and feel free um, not to touch this, uh, but I did, um, in reading about you, um, came across a quote from uh, Reader's Digest in September 2010 where you said, uh, I don't have any idea who or what God is, but I do believe in some great spiritual power. I feel it particularly when I'm out in nature. It's just something that's bigger and stronger than what I am or what anybody is. I feel it, and that's enough for me. Yep. That feels very close to, as somebody who's grown up in Aotearoa, New Zealand, very close to a tikanga or te ao Māori understanding yep. of the world. And as you say, you know, that kind of westernised um religious, for lack of a better term, approach has really stripped back our understanding of the natural world. So how do you think uh, you've been involved in breaking down all of these preconceptions for the past 50 years? Well, yeah, 60. 60. Yeah. 60 years next July. Yeah, in <laughs> 2020. Yeah. Yeah. 60 years. Um, how far do you think we still have to go? Well, unfortunately, although as a student you can now study animal personality, animal emotions, mm. and certainly intellect. I mean, animals, so many animals are way more intelligent than we used to think, even octopus and yeah. you know, making houses out in the sand out of two empty uh, coconut shells. That's incredible cool. yeah. what they do. And uh, the creativity. But, you know, there's also this big difference, which is the explosive development of our intellect. Yeah. And, you know, we've, we've sent a rocket to Mars. Yeah. We get photographs of the surface of Mars. I don't think we want to go and live there. I don't. I'm I'd sure hope you not. Don't. Yeah. And, um, you know, talking about the intellect, every time I look up at the moon, I just get this feeling of awe that somebody walked up there. Yeah. And... You know, because when I was a child, and you've grown up with it, but for me it was science fiction. Mm. And it's extraordinary what our brain has done, which makes it even more extraordinary that this brilliantly intellectual creature is destroying its only home. Absolutely. Very fast. And what is it that you think has contributed to that absolutely illogical behaviour? Why, why, you know, you've studied chimpanzees. I'm sure you've also spent quite a bit of time around human beings. Why are we so irrational? Our materialistic greed, we've moved away from the natural world. Mm -hmm. And it was Mahatma Gandhi who said, the planet can provide for human need, but not human greed. Mm -hmm. So the three problems I see that we have to solve, well, maybe four, but um, because corruption we've got to do something yeah, yeah but the three main ones first of all poverty extreme poverty yeah. you destroy the environment to make a living mm. or in an urban area you buy the cheapest you can't afford to yeah. say how was it made did it harm mm -hmm. the environment did it lead to cruelty to animals mm. you know um secondly our unsustainable lifestyle yours mm. mine mm. just about all the people we meet in the city and thirdly human population growth. Mm. So the, the crazy thing is, uh, if you think of it logically, here we are on a planet with finite natural resources, yep. countries getting wealthier, people demanding more and more and more natural resources. Mm. It doesn't make sense. Mm. 
but we've somehow got ourselves into that mindset and it's one of the things that blows my mind particularly being engaged in politics is that GDP is the great measure of success but it externalises things like the environment yes GDP does not take into account the cost that's being exacted from other nature Mm. that's not put into it Mm. So it's a false GDP, really. Absolutely, it's a false economy. Yeah, yeah. it's a false economy. Um, one of the amazing women who I've been fortunate to know in my life um, was is Jeanette Fitzsimons, who's the um, one of the co-founders of the Greens, and um, she said uh, in her time in Parliament that we currently have an economic system that exploits both people and the planet. And I find that we almost have this bizarre cognitive dissonance where most people are aware of things like climate change occurring and aware that we are ripping down our forests and we are pulling up far too many fossil fuels that we could ever burn. Absolutely. And as you say, kind of also uh, wagging our finger at poorer people for purchasing products that they don't have any opportunity to purchase. Yeah. So what's the fuse breaker there? What do we need? How do we solve it? It's all on you, Dr. Jacob. Right. Absolutely. Well, you know, the, the way it happened for me was I left Gombe in 1986. Mm. I'd visit, but, you know, I left the research in the most beautiful days of my life, out in the rainforest, understanding the interconnection of all living things and feeling this great spiritual power. You know, that was the best time of my life. Mm. And I left when I realised that chimps were disappearing across Africa, forests were going. I managed to get somebody to go there I think you need to see it with your own eyes. Mm. Learned a lot about chimpanzees and their problems, but also the plight of the people. Yeah. And flying over the little Gombe National Park, which had been part of the Equatorial Forest Belt, 1990, it's now an island of forest with completely bare hills, more people than the land could support, mm. too poor to buy food from elsewhere. And that's when it actually hit me, if we don't, help these people find ways of making a living without destroying the environment. Mm. We can't even try to save the chimps. Mm. So we started our project to to help the people. We called it Take Care of Takari. Mm. And we started it by a little group of hand-picked Tanzanians who were local, went into the villages and asked them, what they thought we could do to help them, rather than a bunch of arrogant white people. Yeah, just marching, marching in. in. Yeah, colonisation. So it developed slowly, and I think one of our best interventions was microcredit, oh, based yeah, on yeah. Mohammed Yunus, Grameen mm-hmm. Bank, and scholarships to keep girls in school during and past puberty, mm. uh, de- delivering family planning information. We didn't, they did. Mm. They came to workshops. And it's very successful, so that project which began with 12 villages and a tiny European Union group is now in 104 villages right through the chimp range in Tanzania and all those villages have provided uh, volunteers who even if they can't read and write they can use smartphones and they go into their village forest preserves and uh, check on the health of the forest because almost all the chimps aren't in protected areas than mm. these village forest preserves. Now the people have become our partners and there's no bare hills around Gombe anymore. The trees mm. have come back. And that program, similar to with, with the Jane Goodall Institute, in six other African countries now. Wow. So there are chimps and forests there which wouldn't be 
if we haven't introduced this program. Absolutely. Well, that's, I mean, real sustainable development, right? I think that point around arrogance of it's a lot of people perhaps engage in charity and, you know, give their money to these massive um, international organisations who decide that they're going to build a well and they're not consulting with the locals and it becomes completely irrelevant and by the by because it actually doesn't help them in their daily lives. Also, that well can draw up... um, underground water that is being used to do something downstream mm. and can well that's what's happening all over the world isn't it all mm. this water taken out of the aquifers for irrigation absolutely in inappropriate places yeah i mean you're touching on <laughs> irrigation yeah. new zealand has um, some pretty big challenges yeah. when it comes to moving towards carbon neutrality um so you you're coming, um, you know, to us in the middle of just last week. We uh, tabled in Parliament the zero carbon bill, yeah. uh, which will put New Zealand on a pathway towards um, carbon neutrality by 2050. Um, do things like that give you hope? Do you think that that's enough? Well, there's an awful lot of. I mean, you know, after the Paris, yeah, climate accord, yeah. all the all the countries said that they do this, 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 and this, but the only couple of countries that actually have, so they say. Uh, lived up to what they said is because they put all their dirty manufacturing out to China. Yeah, in a different country, yeah. So, you know, but anyway, you, you asked about, you know, what we do about all this. Yeah. So when I was traveling around the world talking about it, I was meeting all these young people who'd lost hope, high school, university, mm-hmm. and they all said, well, we feel angry or we feel uh, in despair and where we're depressed or we're simply apathetic because there's no point. Um, You've compromised our future and there's nothing we can do about it. Yeah. But, I mean, I think they often place blame on baby boomers, but they probably can't place it on you. (laughs) You've done a lot to operate in the opposite. But, you know, when they think that the older generations have compromised their Mm. future, they're right. Mm. They have. And, that Native American saying, we've not inherited this planet from our parents, we've borrowed it from our children, mm. but we've been stealing, not borrowing. Mm. And so that led to the Jane Goodall Institute youth program, Roots and Shoots, which is one of the programs in all 34 Jane Goodall Institutes mm. around the world, including the one here in New Zealand. And it's basically... Uh, started in Tanzania with 12 high school students. There's only about 12, 12 villages around <laughs> Gombe, 12 high school 12 students. Disciples, 12 disciples. 12 disciples. Anyway, um, they were concerned about all kinds of different things. Mm. And so we decided the most important message is every individual makes an impact every day and we can choose what sort of impact we make. Mm. And that each group would choose three projects between them, one to help people, one to help animals, one to help the environment, because it's all interrelated. Absolutely. And so what began with these 12 high school students is now in 60 countries. We have members in even preschool, not many, but <laughs> lots of kindergarten, yeah. lots of university and everything in between. And about 150,000 active groups. And then there's all the ones who been through and they're now in, in you know, increasingly in government positions yeah. and and CEOs of major corporations. Mm. It began in 91. Oh, wow. 
So the Minister of Environment in Tanzania and DRC was in Roots and Shoots. That's so cool. And it is. And I go to China and people come up and say, well, of course I care about animals. I was in Roots and Shoots in primary school. Yeah. So they take the values with them. Yeah. Well, it's about their education, right? It's and about the education and bringing them together and helping young people. You know, we've got to do something about this racism. And yeah. And the violence and the, even the, the, you know, fanatical religion and mm. stuff. But if you get the people together, the youth together mm. from different factions, they very soon realise that they're, they're not so different. the same. Yeah. So you've got hope then for the future? Hope, but, but. It depends on taking action. Yeah. We need to take action now. And what's the best form of action that you think people should take? Well... First of all, they should join Roots and Shoots yep. or JGI and learn more about it. And it's all out there on the internet. Um, and then think about the consequences of the little choices you make each day. You know, what you buy, mm. where did it come from? Mm. Um, think about the, the consequences. And here's another one for New Zealand, the um, intensive animal agriculture. Yep. And here, I guess it's mostly dairy. Mm. It's 48% of our emissions. Chickens yeah. as well. Mm. So you're destroying the environment to grow food for them. You're using fossil fuels. I'm not saying you being New Zealand, we, the world. Yeah. Fossil fuels to get the grain to the animals, the animals to the abattoir, mm. and the meat to the table. Then you're wasting lots of water, changing vegetable to animal protein, and then you've got the methane emissions, yeah. the farting. Yeah, <laughs> people do as well as yeah. animals, and cows also belch a lot because yeah. they're ruminants. Mm -hmm. So you know these these are things which, when you get into position you're in, yeah, when you're in government or in a position of being a decision maker, so often you find one solution and it leads to another problem. Mm. So okay, you reduce dairy farming. What are the farmers going to do? Mm. You can't just say no. You can't dairy farm anymore. Mm. You have to offer them an option. So, you know, what, one thing leads to another. So, suppose we go totally to a plant based diet. Mm -hmm. How do we find sufficient land to grow enough plants to feed the world? And then you have the other problem uh, people saying you've got to use GMOs yeah. to feed the plant, which of course is a total lie, but that's mm -hmm. what people are saying. So, speaking to the kind of wealth and, you know, you've quite uh, articulately connected the issues of the environment and of inequality. Uh, quite frequently, I find that, particularly on a political level, when we are talking about uh, living in harmony, essentially, with the planet, with natural resources, but also with each other, uh, people become quite fearful because, in a practical sense, that is talking about things like taxation. And people are terrified <laughs> of taxation because it's become the bogeyman since largely the 1980s. Uh, what do you say to that kind of thing? Well, I don't. I leave that to you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So not running for the Green Party of Aotearoa anytime soon. Um, That's your problem. Yeah. yeah. And you've offered um, the cultural solution. Yeah. <laughs> I'll do my utmost, I promise. I don't pretend to, to be able to deal with anything more than I think I might be mm. able to. Mm. And we all have a role to play, which I presume is, yeah. you know, the point that you made. You know, the, the great thing about these Roots and Shoots groups that I meet everywhere, I've met them in the last few days here in New Zealand, and they are so full of energy and enthusiasm yeah. and 
and you know they are we are bringing together uh, children of different religions mm. and um you know you just have to cope with the with the um horrible situation in Christchurch yeah with the mosques mm. yeah. so I, I was sort of hoping when I went to Christchurch that I could I could actually go and talk to people in the mosque mm. but apparently it's too late to work something out oh no it's, it's unfortunate yeah because I've, I've talked in mosques in synagogues in temples in just about every religion and I'm a part of the Council of World Religions yeah that's awesome and it's about connecting people as you say yeah. and finding yeah. those similarities just to wrap up on what, what's your goal if you could you know, you've already achieved so much, um, but you're still going. What, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> isn't there an awful lot left? <laughs> exactly. So what is it if you... The goal is to create a critical mass of young people in as many countries as possible who understand that, yes, we must have money to live, at least in the, you know. Mm. Um, it starts going wrong when we're living for money, when money becomes a god, when we become so wrapped up in materialism, mm. when we forget our connection to Mother Nature. And it's it's not just that we're going to destroy the natural world and, and all the animals, the biodiversity that we depend on. We're destroying our own future. Mm. Because, we, you know, the forest provides clean air and clean water. So does the ocean provide clean air. We both absorb carbon dioxide. And what happens when, you know, with our insecticides, we're destroying our pollinators. Mm. And the way that, you know. So. Yeah, so we need to stop all of that and we need to start living in harmony. It's really. your job. Isn't yeah, it? <laughs> it's my job. It is my job. I think um, one of the big things that I've uh, become an advocate for, um, I think by virtue of lived experience, but... Uh, also um, is what drew me into being where I am inside politics, uh, is speaking to that disconnection, not just from nature, but also from each other and the isolation. Ironically, that technology that's supposed to connect us provides uh, is that all of that disconnection is manifesting, I believe, in the mental ill health epidemic that we've got presently. That's so. and the lack of hope. Yeah. And, you know, I think as people learn more and more about what we're doing to the planet, they get less and less hope, and scientists are telling them we're on a downward trajectory. So, you know, I see my job as uh, giving people hope by talking about the wonderful projects that I've seen, the re the, the restoration of nature, yeah. where I just was. Zelandia is but Miramatu, mm. I just planted a tree there. Mm. And I know projects like that in many parts of the world. I've written books about the restoration of places and People who get a thing, I'm not going to let this animal species die. And, you know, you've got great examples in New Zealand. Yeah, we do. Great examples in New Zealand. Mm. And, you know, so spreading the hope that it's possible to make change. If you take action. If you take action. And that's why the youth is so important. And they're changing their parents. They are. Some of the parents are CEOs. Mm. Some of the parents are in government. Mm. And, um, yeah. Yeah, is that new work of change? Well, you're more than welcome to uh, come to the school strike tomorrow. No, along with me. No, <laughs> not interested in protests. Well, the, yes, protests bring things to people's attention. Mm. But I'm telling the kids, unless you yourself are taking some action, mm. I mean, you can't have a child come and point at you and say, "Why aren't you doing something for climate change?" Mm. If they're doing nothing, mm. so 
join the two together, yes. Yeah. Take action, but also take responsibility. Kia ora. Kia ora whanau. I hope that you enjoyed this episode of Green Tea. Make sure to check out more awesome, brilliant, fun, radical, wonderful conversations uh, in our other episodes of Green Tea. Uh, please make sure that you do like, subscribe, all of the things that YouTube bloggers say at the end of their videos, but just whatever will help us to escalate this podcast up the uh, kind of ranks, because it so happens that inside the Green Party caucus, we currently have uh, excessive representation of podcasters. And I mean, in a non-violent manner, I would very much like to wrangle down our honourable James Shaw, co-leader of the Greens, Minister of Climate Change, uh, and make sure that he knows he has to keep evolving and progressing. Thanks for tuning in.